Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Today, it's midday on immigration. Last week, the Biden administration announced new policies designed to help stem the surge of migration across the southwest border. They include a combination of pathways to legal entry into the country and expanded expedited removal of those who cross into the U.S. unlawfully. The president visited the border for the first time as president on Sunday, and then he traveled to Mexico City for what's known as the Three Amigos Summit, where he met with his presidential counterparts in Canada and Mexico. A little later in the program, I'll speak with Krish Omera Vignaraja, the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, and Juliana Valencia Banks, Baltimore County's Immigrant Affairs Outreach Coordinator. But we begin with NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez, who joins us from NPR headquarters in Washington. Hey, Franco, Happy New Year. Welcome back. Hey, Tom. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So in 2022, uh, 2.2 million migrants were apprehended at the border. That's up from 1.6 million in 2021. It was only a million, only a million in uh, 2019. So clearly there's a big surge. When the president went to El Paso, Texas, um, he wasn't there for very long. But what was what was on his mind? What was his agenda? Why did he include that in his itinerary. Yeah, uh, it was a short stop in El Paso, Texas, which is right across from Juarez, which is where a lot of uh, migrants are kind of, uh, you know, standing in line trying to come across uh, the border. I mean, in in some ways, this was an issue that he could no longer not uh, address uh, more directly. He had been coming under fire from uh, largely from Republicans, but also some Democrats um, who have been um, critical of Biden's uh, immigration policy. And the fact that he had not gone to the border had been fueling critics uh, who said that it, it was an example of him not taking the border seriously. So with the new House, uh, Republican-controlled House coming into office um, and promising to put greater scrutiny on the border, this is kind of something that he could not ignore. Um, so he made this trip, as you noted, it was a very short stop on his way to Mexico or Mexico, to Mexico City for the North American Leaders Summit. Um, and there it was in in El Paso. It was very choreographed. It was there to sh- kind of show efforts to address illegal immigration and kind of stop uh, contraband of drugs. It was his first stop. Um, but, you know, in many ways, it was he was there to kind of stem that criticism that he's been getting. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas handed the president a letter uh, right on the tarmac of the airport when he arrived in El Paso. Uh, What was in that letter? Anything new? Uh, Was that just a sort of, you know, political photo op kind of thing? Or uh, was there anything substantive? Uh, There was definitely uh, politics involved in that. Uh, Governor Abbott, pretty much immediately after handing over that letter, uh, calling for, you know, for more uh, work on the border. Um, he you know, broadcast that uh, on his networks to kind of show that he was doing that. Um, you know, this is something that Governor Abbott and President Biden have been kind of going back and forth at it for quite a while. Governor Abbott is obviously one of the governors uh, who have been uh, very much involved in using uh, essentially taxpayer money to bus uh, migrants from their states 
uh, to, you know, Democratic-led states, including um, as well as to Washington, D.C. It was, uh, you know, I think it was New Year's Eve or certainly over the holidays at, uh, a, in the frigid cold that a bus uh, with many um, uh, migrants arrived outside the doors of the vice president's uh, house. Uh, so this is these are some of the tactics that uh, Governor Abbott and other Republican-led governors are doing. To their message is that you know that the the federal government as well as Democratic-led states need to share the burden, um, but they're doing it in very uh, dramatic fashion. Speaking of the vice president, what's her profile been in this? Uh, week uh, where immigration was was sort of front and center at the beginning of the Biden administration, uh, she was tasked with uh, with taking care of the immigration immigration issue to a certain extent. Um, she was standing behind the president when he made his announcement about uh, the new policies that are going to be in effect. But uh, other than that, uh, doesn't seem to me like we've seen a whole lot of her uh, when it comes to, to this week, at least. No, we have not seen uh, as much from her. She was standing behind the president when he gave his remarks about the border uh, and saying that he was going to visit the border on his way to Mexico. Um, but you're right. Since you know, since early on uh, in the administration, when she was tasked with a role that he actually had during the Obama administration to look into and kind of address the root causes of migration, to work with the governments in uh, Central America as well as Mexico uh, to address the issues of why people leave their home and why they make that difficult journey uh, to the United States. She, you know, kind of had a few big splashes in the beginning, but since then uh, has kind of pulled uh, back or certainly focused on some other things that that issue hasn't gotten as much attention. Her staff will tell you that she's very much still working on it. But as you noted, we uh, have not seen as much about it. You know, it's a it's a very difficult issue. It's a difficult job. It's kind of a no win job. I often talk about how, um, you know, this is something that the United States wants. It's something that the government's wants, but it's unclear um, how much the governments in those countries uh, want these things. Critics often tell me, analysts uh, of those countries often tell me that, you know, the, the governments there, the, 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 the organizations, the human trafficking organizations, the cartels that are very heavily involved in moving, helping move people, uh, you know, to the border, uh, they have, you know, big sway in the government. Um, and the government has not shown the same type of desire or push uh, to kind of address some of these uh, corruption issues, these problems that they have, uh, as much as at least the United States would like them to. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Franco Ordonez, who is the White House correspondent for NPR. We're talking about immigration and immigration policy. So, Franco, uh, when the president did go to Mexico City for a uh, meeting with uh, the president of Mexico and the president of or the prime minister of Canada, uh, what's his relationship like with uh, AMLO, as he's known, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico? It seemed like uh, they, the two of them uh, uh, 
uh, sort of, uh, you know, muscled out uh, Justin Trudeau from the spotlight in this one. <laughs> yeah, that was not not too much of a surprise. The two have have had, uh, you know, there's been some friction. There's no question about it. I mean, Oberdor was one of the last leaders to formally congratulate Biden after he won uh, the 2020 election. Um, and he also notably and, you know, quite embarrassingly skipped uh, the Summit of the Americas uh, last year that Biden was hosting. It was uh, a really big embarrassment for the administration. So this trip uh, was a, a big part of this trip was to try to improve relations uh, between the two. And they did find some, you know, common ground on the trip on things like migration. Uh, you know, they just reached a deal to kind of work together more on mi- migration. They're also talking about economic integration, as well as kind of addressing, you know, the large amount of fentanyl that is uh, come across the border. Um also, you know, Oberdor during the press conference, you know, he looked to Biden, uh, you know, sincerely and said that he is the first president of the United States in a very, quote, very long time who has not built even one meter of wall. We thank you for that, sir. Um, he called Biden a man of convention, conviction, pardon me. So some, some warm words, but at the same time, there were definitely some awkward moments um, in their one-on-one meeting at the National Palace. Lopez Obrador uh, told Biden that he had his hand, you know, he had a key in his hand to improve relations with Latin America. And he told Biden to do away with the, quote, abandonment and disdain for Latin America and the Caribbean. This is something that many leaders in Latin America have long had uh, problems with the United States about, feeling like the United States does not pay enough attention, give enough support uh, to its neighbors uh, in Latin America. And Biden, you know, was clearly a bit uncomfortable. And he responded that, unfortunately, he said that, you know, the United States responsibility just doesn't end in the Western Hemisphere and that there's a lot there's a lot of need around the world, um, noting the amount of foreign aid that the U.S. provides across uh, across the globe. I guess Mexico has agreed to uh, take in uh, more people than they were taking in before when it comes to the the so-called expedited removal policy that the president announced before he left on this trip. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what that entails. Yeah, so they reached a new deal for Mexico to take in more migrants, 30,000 migrants a month. It's actually an extension of a plan that was worked out in Venezuela to take in uh, Venezuelans that are arriving at the border. This new plan includes Venezuelans, Cubans, Nicaraguans, as well as Haitians. Mexico will actually take in 30,000 migrants uh, a month from those countries who who come to the United States, many seeking asylum, uh, but are being turned away by the U.S. government uh, based on some Trump-era pandemic policies that are still in place, largely because of a ruling by the Supreme Court. Um, but Oberdor actually on this trip uh, said that he may be that the that that Mexico may be open to taking more. Um, so this is a, a significant uh, a significant deal, and also you know expected to 
you know, kind of be a big uh, clampdown on more enforcement of migration because in recent years there has been a big switch in, um, in the demographics of migrants coming to the U.S. border, and many are from Venezuela, Cuba, um, Nicaragua, the countries I just, Haiti, the countries I just mentioned, um, as opposed to in the past uh, where we've seen many from uh, Central America. And uh, of course, thirty thousand is an increase. That's a you know a good thing, I suppose. But uh, in November, uh, the December statistics aren't out yet, as I understand it. Uh, Border Patrol agents uh, encountered some ninety thousand prospective immigrants from the countries you just mentioned. So um, it's going to be inadequate um, pretty quickly. Um, is there any sense um, that that there are a lot of people? still trying to get uh, into the country illegally uh, who are not seeking asylum? Uh, or do we have a sense that the majority of the people making you know, the, this very arduous and dangerous journey from their home countries are doing it for purposes of, of uh, requesting asylum? Well, certainly a, a great number come uh, to the United States seeking asylum. Now, most, uh, you know, most, ex- you know, pretty much all experts will tell you that most people who do end up in the system applying for asylum do not get it. Um, uh, so, you know, it's it's a it's a tough it's a tough tough situation. Um, you know, many the the situations in these countries are very difficult. Obviously, in Venezuela, in Cuba, you have. Uh, authoritarian leaders. Um, so there are, you know, different, you know, there are different uh, things to be thinking about, different different reasons that they are coming versus perhaps uh, in Central America, though in Central America, there's obviously quite a big of drug violence, people living in fear from that. Um, so there's different reasons that people come to the United States. But you know, it has been a big challenge uh, for the United States uh, because you know it's in you know it's in it's in the laws that uh, you know those coming to the border are you know allowed to seek asylum. But with this pandemic order, it's called Title Forty Two, uh, the United States is essentially turning away migrants uh, without giving them the chance uh, to do that. So, you know, advocacy groups, um, you know, while you know pleased that, uh, you know, part of this plan is to accept more, 30,000 more a month from these countries. They're shutting the door on so many more. So they say it's slamming the door on most migrants seeking asylum while cracking a window to let a few in. And Franco, before I let you go, uh, I want to switch topics and ask you about the revelations concerning classified documents that have been found uh, in places that Joe Biden uh, hangs around. Uh, one was found, uh, or uh, one little cache of them were found uh, a few days ago in a former office that he used to use. Uh, there was a second uh, batch of documents found yesterday, and just this morning uh, we hear about a third batch of documents found in his home in Wilmington, Delaware. What can you tell us about uh, what the president has had to say about these documents? Yeah, President Biden addressed that this morning in talks after um, some new economic numbers came out. And as you point out, a new batch of documents was found in his house in Wilmington. Uh, He said his lawyers uh, were looking at some of his different uh, locations where uh, where he has worked, um, and that's where they found some few. They also checked, according to his lawyer, they also checked his uh, home in Rehoboth, uh, as well as some other spots, but it was his home 
in Wilmington. Most of them were found in President Biden's garage. Um, the one document was also found in an adjacent room. Um, so it's and you know this is this is another issue of classified documents being in a place where they should not be. It raises a lot of questions about President Biden's own handling of classified materials uh, after he left. Um, you know the Obama administration. These are documents from the Obama administration when he was vice president. But it's also raised questions about how the White House is kind of communicating this uh, discovery to the pu- public. Uh, you know this first discovery of documents was two months ago. Um, you know, the, the administration did not come out and immediately talk about it. Um, and now, uh, you know, now more documents are coming out after, you know, there's been a lot of legitimate questions about it. So it's been, it's fueling attacks from Republicans. They're claiming a double standard for how Biden is being treated versus how former President Donald Trump um, is being treated. Clearly, there's a special counsel looking into the possible mishandling of classified documents by Trump uh, that were discovered in his Florida estate. Now, the Attorney General Merrick Garland has assigned um, a special uh, U.S. attorney or a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Chicago to look into the documents found uh, for Biden. And later today, in less than an hour, actually, Garland is expected to give a statement um, we don't know exactly what it is about, but certainly expectations are high that it is going to be related to this. Yeah, we got a, a press release from the Department of Justice that said today at one fifteen, uh, Attorney General Garland will make a statement. That's all it said. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you and I make statements all the time, but we <laughs> don't, don't often send out press releases prior to doing that. Exactly. And, we and, say them more often than Garland does. Yeah, we do. At least public ones. Exactly. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And Thanks we'll for be having in touch. me, Tom. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, perspective and analysis from Krish Omera Vignaraja, the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. It's midday. We're talking immigration today. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow on the show, a conversation with two Baltimore City councilmen, Zeke Cohen and Yitzi Schleifer, about the resignation of the director of the city's Department of Public Works. Jason Mitchell plans to leave the position this spring after less than two years. So I'll speak with Councilman Cohen and Schleifer about what the city should expect from leadership at the DPW. Plus, Mark Hansen, the president and CEO of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, talks about what's in store for the BSO in this new year. So that's on the way tomorrow. If you've just joined us today, we're talking about immigration and the persistent problem that cities along the southern border and many throughout the country are facing as the number of migrants seeking entry into the U.S. grows steadily. My next guest is Krish Omara Vignaraja. She is the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. She joins us on Zoom. Krish, Happy New Year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Tom, and Happy New Year to you. 
Thanks. So one of the conundrums uh, that you've uh, pointed out, uh, as have uh, a few others, uh, has to do with Title 42, which was upheld by the Supreme Court. Uh, the Biden administration is is fighting that decision. But in the announcement that the president made before he went to El Paso last week, um, he announced that they were actually going to uh, expand the the enforcement of Title 42. What, what do you make of that? What, what's going on here? Yeah, Tom, it's been very odd. And candidly, it's been disjointed. When you think about what President Biden said as a candidate, where he was vocally opposed to this Trump era um, policy, Title 42 instituted under a public health guise, um, or the fact that even these days, the administration has fought tooth and nail Title 42 in the courts, and yet from the briefing room, they continue to expand it. It does seem like an oddity. Um, you know, I think it's important for the public to understand when Title 42 is lifted, um, which we've advocated for, uh, because there really is no rationale to, to justify it today, there it doesn't have to just revert to some sort of open border. We have policies like Title VIII, which allow for you know, expedited removal. There are border management tools that are available. It's just we can't use the pretense of the pandemic to continue to eviscerate people's right to seek asylum. It's a legal right that we have. And what do you make of the of the new policies at the border? As Franco Ordonez uh, mentioned, uh, a lot of folks describe it as you know slamming a door and then cracking a window open a little bit. Um, how how do you see on balance uh, what what the administration uh, was proposed is is now implementing uh, at the southern border? Yeah, I mean, you know, our view is that we want more legal migration. That includes creating more legal pathways to enter the U.S. But legal migration also means allowing vulnerable families to seek asylum. It means ensuring that the U.S. meets its legal requirements under U.S. and international law for an asylum seeker who reaches U U.S. soil to make a legal claim, um, you know, rather than being summarily expelled under the false pretense that is Title 42. And so our point is that, you know, we support the administration's decision to expand the use of humanitarian parole. That's a that's the program um, that the president has uh, expanded. Um, but he can't just create a narrow pathway for a privileged minority that doesn't also allow for that access for the vulnerable majority. There's no reason for why he needed to tether expanding Title 42 to create, creating the humanitarian parole programs. And, and our basic point is the carrot and stick approach, which seems to underlie the president's announcement, it makes sense if a person has a real choice to choose the carrot before they face the stick. B but the carrot in this case, it requires people to navigate the complex legal labyrinth that is humanitarian parole. It requires them to find a U.S.-based financial sponsor. They have to have a passport. They have to be able to afford to pay for a flight to the U.S. And candidly, having met many of uh, the clients that we serve at the border, um, many of the individuals who have come to our area here in the D.C. metro region, these are not attainable for so many of those people. And that's why, you know, we have found it to be a mixed bag. 
Krish Omera Vignaraja is the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We're talking immigration today. Our number, 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday, WIPR. So as Franco and I were talking about earlier in the show, um, uh, there's been uh, in the vicinity of 90,000 prospective immigrants coming in every month. Uh, and the president announced that Mexico would accept 30,000 individuals per month from these four countries, uh, Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. Um, so obviously, it's not going to uh, it's not going to take care of uh, of everybody who needs to be uh, figured out. So, so what happens with the other sixty thousand people then? Uh, does everybody just get immediately uh, removed and and uh, not allowed the the uh, the capacity to apply for asylum? Yeah. So that's going to be what's interesting to see how this plays out because you know some number will be admitted into the U.S. through humanitarian parole. Some number, 30,000 at this point, will be returned to Mexico. But once Mexico says, no, we won't receive any more, then I think we'll revert to the system that we have seen in the last several months, which is that those who have um, met the credible fear requirement, meaning that there's sort of an initial screen, for those people who can't be returned um, and meet that legal threshold, presumably some number of them will be allowed to stay in the country. The president talked about increasing humanitarian assistance in Mexico and Central America, some $23 million in additional assistance. Um, Is the federal government uh, giving any assistance to places like El Paso, Texas, uh, and the other border towns that are uh, finding it very difficult to accommodate the migrants as they come in, or even places like Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York, where a lot of these folks are are uh, are ending up. I mean, even the Democratic governor of Colorado was uh, busing people with one-way tickets to places like Chicago. It's not not just Republican governors like, you know, Greg Abbott and, and uh, DeSantis in Florida uh, who are doing this now. I mean, th- there are cities all over the country, not even ones on the border, who are, are, are crying wolf here and saying, I just can't, uh, I can't, or crying uncle, I suppose, just saying, <laughs> saying I forget, I forget what they cry when they give up. <laughs> but uh, whatever, whatever they cry when they give up, that's what they're crying. Uh, who's the federal government helping out at this point? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great point because you're right. It is, uh, Mayor Mario Bowser. It's Mayor Eric Adams. Um, and I think, yes, the administration um, is starting to step up. Uh, it was helpful to see in the omnibus package that passed at the end of the year, um, there is $800 million, um, that will help uh, with border operations. Um, so that will bring it to about $2 billion in total um, that could help with this network. Um, I think that is a, a step in the right direction. But I do think there is a broader point here, which is, will the administration recognize that immigration is a federal issue and there needs to be more of a national solution? Because there's just such a disparity. When you think about refugee resettlement, you know, LIRS is one of the largest refugee resettlement agencies. We have an infrastructure that has been built over four decades. So we help 
by working with the State Department to decide where an individual or family goes. We make sure that the agency there can help provide them, you know, some meager, but some baseline assistance. But if you're an asylum seeker who also have a legal right to seek asylum here in the U.S., you come in, you're released, and then basically there's nothing, right? You sort of face this cliff. And so our point in meetings with the White House, with the Department of Homeland Security is, we need to build something of an infrastructure. If we understand that immigration can't be just the burden of border states, then we need to realize that many of these individuals are in fact going to places like those you mentioned. And so what we've actually built is a consortium with three other national agencies to say we can help with asylum seekers, frankly, from Mexico to wherever their final destination is. Uh, We haven't had many bites yet, Um, in terms of that. But I think that that is the broader point, which is you just can't have um, people with no assistance come in because you will see um, these movements where cities will feel crushed. You'll see governors who try to make this a political issue and bus and plane people, frankly, to where there is no infrastructure so they can create a crisis. And so I think that is where the federal government does need to step up. How do you respond to those uh, on the Republican right who say uh, that uh, these these folks come and they are a drain on American resources? They are a drain on government benefits that uh, the government of the United States is, you know, subsidizing them when we have plenty of problems and plenty of people here, you know, uh, American U.S. nationals uh, who need the assistance. Yeah, we do have plenty of problems. And I think that um, the way I respond is to say immigration is part of the solution. When you think about the fact that we have over 10 million jobs that are going unfilled right now, and we only have 6 million unemployed workers, who fills that 4 million gap? Why have we seen the prices of things like milk and eggs, you know, agricultural products that require immigrant workers um, for those prices to go up? My point is the price premium we're paying right now, the supply chain shortages that we're facing are in part because last year we had the lowest immigration into the country since 2010. And that dynamic isn't going away. In fact, it's getting worse. We've had the lowest birth rate since the census has tracked this issue. And as people are aging out of the workforce, as more people are just choosing not to work, Immigration has to be part of the solution. And frankly, Baltimore knows this, right? Around 10% of our um, region are immigrants. Immigrants paid $4.2 billion um, in taxes in 2019. Their spending power that they brought to the region is $9.3 billion. Our conversations in Baltimore have been about if we want to stop the population decline, let's recruit immigrants to come. You look at our northern neighbor of Canada, they've proactively said, look, for us to remain a economic powerhouse, we have to learn the lessons from countries like Japan, where you actually are seeing more adult diapers produced than baby diapers. That's what the U.S. is going to face. And so when we look at you know Hopkins and, and the, the medical institutions in our area, um, where our parents are going to go uh, you know, ultimately for assisted living homes, those are industries that rely on immigration. And so we have to have a better system. Of course, we have a broken system. We need to create pathways. We need to create economic visas. So people who are coming for economic reasons to the southern border don't come that way, right? It's a win-win if we allow people pathways so they can apply in-country rather than have to traverse a thousand-mile treacherous journey, pay the coyotes. You know, we shouldn't be 
financing these multi-billion dollar human smuggling operations at our border. But that's where we need Democrats and Republicans to come to the table to fix this broader problem. Yeah, when it comes to the city of Baltimore, I mean, three mayors ago, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake talked about attracting 10,000 new families to Baltimore, and she understood that many of those families were going to be immigrant families uh, who were new to the United States. And she, uh, you know, she had a, a whole program designed uh, to to entice them to come to Baltimore instead of someplace else. Uh, and you're right, you know, the population here in our city and the tax base uh, has steadily declined for, for decades now. Um, so, you know, it is something. And, you know, I, I remember talking to the uh, president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve who said there's two ways of increasing productivity. Number one, everybody can produce more individually. And number two, you can get more people. <laughs> and when you get more people, uh, you can increase productivity. Um, I haven't heard much talk uh, in this last week when immigration has been kind of on the front burner about the dreamers. Where do things stand with these uh, kids now who are some of them in their teens, in their 20s, even older, who were brought to the United States as very small children with their uh, with their families, uh, but who are uh, here uh, in an undocumented status? Yeah, so this is where you see what happened in the house you know with the vote uh, just for leader mccarthy and i think it doesn't necessarily give people hope that there is a legislative fix on the horizon um obviously this is being litigated uh you know before the supreme court as well in terms of um the executive action that the administration took but we have to find a solution i mean this um is an issue where uh, there is broad American support for helping dreamers who know no other home than the U.S. These are people who, you know, they were uh, very young when they came or they, they um, you know, had, had no volition in the decision making. And again, related to the economics, we know that dreamers also play a critical role in our economy. So this is where, again, you know, I know comprehensive immigration reform is now just a phrase. It's not clear what that means, and it's not clear that that's something attainable in the next few years. But I do think that there are lower hanging fruit in immigration areas like the Dreamers, like economic visas, um, trying to you know address the fact that um, visas for nurses, for example, have expired. Where I have found in my conversations with members on the Hill that there is there is some consensus, and, and I am hopeful. Um, that now that we're through the midterms, um, you know, th there is a glimmer of hope that we might be able to solve them. Um, let me ask you uh, again to respond to uh, what we hear as a talking point uh, on the right, and that is the uh, influx of drugs, fentanyl, uh, et cetera, into uh, the United States is, is part of the problem at the southern border. Can you give us an assessment of uh, how big uh, a problem it is in, in terms of the overall uh, rate of migration when, when it comes to asylum seekers versus people who are smuggling drugs in. Um, do you have a sense that it's, uh, you know, 50-50 or 20-80? Uh, I mean, wh what what is the actual um, understanding of how much uh, illegal uh, drug trafficking is happening uh, under the guise of all of these asylum seekers. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, Tom. Because I do think um, you know when I was in Phoenix for our LIRS board meeting a couple months ago, this was you know just before the midterms, and ad after ad um, touched on this issue that fentanyl 
and immigration are essentially being fueled um, uh, as one in the same. And I think, you know, when you actually look at the data, there is no shred of evidence to suggest that fentanyl um, is actually being carried over by asylum seekers, you know, by foot, um, trying to be undetected and, and, and evade border patrol authorities. Um, the reality is that, yes, there is a significant inflow of fentanyl across the southern border, but it's coming through the commercial um, you know, crossings, right? So it is coming through trucks and vans and, 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 and that sort of thing, as opposed to some, you know, mule who's uh, pretending to be an asylum seeker, just because you can't, you know, you can't come across with that kind of volume that is actually fueling, you know, what we've seen in terms of an epidemic. And so I think it is really important, you know, you're not hearing enough of it, um, from immigration advocates to just clarify that the suggestion has been made, but there's no data underlying to suggest that it's actually the case. Um, and that's where, you know, when the president talked about fentanyl in his um, briefing last week, it did worry me because I, I just, I want the audience to understand that this is an assertion that you're hearing from politicians in the same way that you've heard um, politicians say, oh, well, immigrants are fueling um, the criminality that we're seeing across the country. When you actually look at the 21 counties- Yeah, there is data that, about that, right? <laughs> well, no, yeah. And, and what's interesting is the data suggests that it's actually completely the, false. The opposite, right? So right. The 20, <laughs> right. The 21 counties that, uh, you know, that are along our southern border are actually safer than comparable counties um, in country. You know, there's a data, there's a study that was done on the top 10 cities that received refugees. And what this data showed was that those cities are actually safer, um, whether it's violent crime, commercial crime, petty crime, compared to other cities. The one exception was Westfield, West Springfield, Massachusetts, because it was going through an opioid epidemic um, that you know was difficult to control for. And so that's where I just think it's really important. In immigration, you'll see a lot of um, kind of fact versus fiction of it's it's really easy to fear monger, um, but I do think it's really helpful for people to ask the questions you're asking so that we can get to the truth. There is an awful lot of fact versus fiction. That's why we have you on to set us straight about the facts. Krish Omera Vignaraja, she's the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. Thanks so much for your time, Krish. I appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Thanks again. Coming up, Juliana Valencia Banks. In November of 2021, she was appointed Baltimore County's Immigration Affairs Outreach Coordinator, and she's going to join me on the other side of a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Uh, and next week, Maryland will inaugurate its first African-American governor, its first South Asian lieutenant governor, and its first woman comptroller. Our state's first black attorney general was sworn in last week, and Maryland is the most diverse state on the eastern seaboard. So it's fitting 
that we have state leadership that reflects the demographics of our citizens. In November 2021, Baltimore County Executive Johnny Olszewski Jr., acknowledging that his county is becoming more diverse, appointed the county's first immigrant affairs outreach coordinator. She is Juliana Valencia Banks, and she joins us now on Zoom. Ms. Banks, welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me today. So tell us what you do. What is your purview uh, as the uh, the Immigrant Affairs Outreach Coordinator? So my role really is to serve as a conduit between our new American community and county government, the organizations, nonprofits, government agencies that serve these communities and the community. Um, in addition, I'm also working on looking at county policy and the way the government works with our new American communities, how we are providing equitable and accessible services to them, and what improvements we need to make in those areas. So the folks that you're working with, uh, are they uh, here uh, with legal documents, uh, or what, what is their status most often? They're Baltimore County residents, and to me, that's all that matters, right? They have chosen to live in Baltimore County, so their immigration status to me isn't a concern. Um, We do know that in Baltimore County, we have um, over 52,000 eligible immigrant voters, um, but we also know that our immigrant population um, is mixed status. So we have some households where somebody may be a naturalized citizen, somebody may have DACA or somebody may have TPS. And so we look at our residents as county residents. We don't look at them as their immigration status. Um, I understand that uh, the Esperanza Center, uh, which is uh, operated by Catholic Charities of Baltimore, some 40 percent of the calls that they receive are from folks who live in the county. They're not in Baltimore City, for example. Um, what What is your experience when, when it comes to uh, some of the other organizations in the area, in the Baltimore metro uh, region, when it comes to county residents, um, you know, uh, needing uh, those services and, and uh, the advice and help that they can offer? Very similar to Esperanza Center, right? Um, our service providers that are working with New Americans, unfortunately, are... Um, mostly housed in Baltimore City. We don't have any organizations that are working with immigrants that are currently housed in Baltimore County. We are working to change that. We're working with community partners, thinking about ways that um, we can create these centers so that more of our immigrant residents can access services in the county without having to go to a different jurisdiction. What do you hear? And obviously every case is, is individual and different, but overall, uh, what do you hear from the folks that you work with about the reasons that they have ended up in Baltimore County? What has, what has uh, brought them to Baltimore County? What's attracted them uh, to this area? So similar to folks that come into the county, it's the safety in our school systems, job opportunities. And so we are welcoming and seeing more folks come into Baltimore County. They are choosing to work and live and play in the county. And we're thankful that we're able to provide services for them. When it comes to uh, those services, um, uh, what are the gaps that you see? What are, what are the what are the, the challenges that, that you face uh, on their behalf when you're trying to connect them with the services they need to get established? So it all depends on 
where folks are coming from, how long they have lived here, what their immigration status is. But overwhelming concerns um, for our community are access to healthcare services, whether um, folks are uninsured, underinsured, or uninsurable. Um, equitable health care is a top priority for them. Access to education and learning how to navigate our educational system. Similar to native-born populations, affordable housing and affordable child care are um, concerns for our immigrant community. In Baltimore City, we were just talking about this with uh, Krish Vignaraja uh, several mayors ago. Uh, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake made it a point to uh, be as attractive as possible to immigrant families coming in. She had a goal of uh, attracting 10,000 new families to the city of Baltimore. That goal was not reached because our population here in the city has been declining uh, steadily for, for some time. I wonder, is it the, the, the policy of the Baltimore County government and uh, County Executive Olszewski uh, to proactively you know, promote uh, living in Baltimore County among the immigrant community? Are you looking to expand the population of Baltimore County? Last I checked, it was the third most populous county in the state, some 800,000 plus uh, residents in the county. But, but is this a conscious effort to attract uh, and be attractive to immigrant families? Absolutely. We are working and looking at how government interacts with communities through an equity lens, right? So we are analyzing how accessible county services are to folks with limited English proficiency. Baltimore County, as you said, has over 800,000 residents. And of those, close to 13% are foreign born. And, And so we have to recognize that our demographics are changing and how we offer services, how we work with communities, how service providers engage new Americans is also going to have to change as our demographics change. Yeah, the percentage of foreign-born residents, as I understand it, has something like tripled since the 1990s in Baltimore County. Um, What's your assessment of the support for your work and for, uh, you know, enlarging and expanding the immigrant community among uh, longtime county residents who aren't immigrants. How would you assess uh, the support or the the pushback, the opposition uh, to this initiative? So I'm very fortunate that I have the full support of the county executive and working with different community members, engaging community members. Obviously, there is some resistance to our new neighbors, but working with different community um, advocates and organizations to educate um, our native-born population about the richness and the benefits that having um, new neighbors, new Americans in uh, your community bring, right? It's a community that... um, creates safety, increases entrepreneurship, increases home ownership. So there are benefits to having new Americans in the county. It's not just the things that we hear on the news sometimes. Um, It's really a collaborative effort between our county government and our um, community partners working to ensure that native-born county residents aren't feeling replaced. And when it comes to the employment picture, we talked uh, earlier in the program with Krish Vignaraja about, uh, you know, there are 
uh, $6 million available workers and $10 million available jobs. So there's a, a disconnect uh, in that regard. Are you finding that uh, the, the people that you're working with as the, uh, the Immigrant Affairs Outreach Coordinator uh, are able to find employment in the county? Uh, or what, what is the employment situation like? Employment can be challenging, particularly to our county residents that are undocumented or are here on um, student visas and don't have work authorization yet. But these are folks that are able to find work uh, through non-traditional means. And so we do see a spike in immigrant-owned businesses because the population continues to grow. So folks find a way to generate income and contribute to the county economy. Uh, is the budget that you've been giving uh, been given uh, adequate to do the job that you need? Do you, do you see that uh, you and, and, and the folks you work with you know, need to expand and scale up what you're doing? Absolutely. Um, we've been, I've, my work has been supported, thankfully, but I recognize that um, it's a new office. It's, you know, I've been in this role for less than 14 months. And so taking this time to learn about our county, learn about our community, figuring out best ways to support them and going into this new fiscal year, addressing those needs to grow my role and grow and create eventually an office of new Americans here in Baltimore County. Juliana Valencia Banks is the Immigrant Affairs Outreach Coordinator in Baltimore County. Ms. Valencia Banks, thank you so much for your uh, time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, a conversation about leadership changes that are on the way at the Baltimore City Department of Public Works with two city councilmen, Zeke Cohen and Yitzi Schleifer, plus Mark Hansen, the president and CEO of the Baltimore Symphony, talks about the artistic leadership change that's on the way uh, at the BSO that has a lot of folks very, very excited. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. This is your NPR News Station. Member supported 88.1. WYPR.